So my friends, on this day of America's independence, I am elated to raise a glass to liberty with you. Um, and I am Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. And I am paling in envy that my guest today, John Rain, has the best job title at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. And that is Senior Counselor for Geopolitical Due Diligence. It's an elegant title and it even accurately, so unlike the way that Washington government job titles are inversely proportional to the power that the person holds, John's title elegantly sums up how he actually makes his contribution to the IISS. Uh, John Rain, uh, as you guys know, we have, as our listeners know, we have a prohibition against the use of acronyms because all of us data nerds at the IISS very frequently talk in shorthand to each other. But in commemoration of the country from which the United States won its independence or declared its independence on this day in 1776, I am going to ask John Rain to decrypt for us provincials two three-letter acronyms, and they are CMG and OBE, which to non-British listeners uh, probably will not immediately conjure uh, the, the munificence of your sovereign. So tell us what they stand for, John. Thank you, Corey, and my hearty congratulations too to all our listeners, particularly those in America, on the 4th of July. Uh, the the three-letter acronyms that you refer to after my name, those are honours which were given to me for my work for the British government, which I'm very proud to hold. Uh, the first of those, the CMG, means that I'm a companion of the Order of St. Michael and St. George. And the second, which I realise may be a little bit frictional <laughs> on Independence <laughs> Day, is I am an officer of the Order of the British Empire. And John was um, awarded those honours on the basis of 33 years of important work to the British government through the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. He was stationed in several countries in the Middle East, had operational deployments with British military forces in Afghanistan and Iraq, and also, uh, while in headquarters assignments, had uh, did a lot of interesting and important work on British defense strategy uh, and overall geopolitical thinking, which is why we were so grateful to pull him to this team. So let me start, John, by asking, uh, what, what of your broad portfolio are you thinking about, worried about geopolitical developments just now? Thank you, Corey. Well, I'm worried about things that I know you worry about and a lot of policy practitioners and commentators all over the world worry about, and that is what, what is happening to the international order? What kind of a world of geopolitics are we now inhabiting and, and moving into? And for me, that, that's an enormous and pervasive subject, which is both a specialism in its own right, but touches upon all regions of the world and all countries. Anyone who has an interest, academic, 
Mr. Marshall, be what it may, in international affairs has to, I think, have a view on that. We call it the international order, it could be the international disorder, it could be something in between. But basically, it's the mechanics of how countries work with one another. I like the former US PACOM commander Harry Harris's description of the international order as the operating system that, the, that international engagement works on. Uh, he's the ambassador in South Korea now, and it strikes me that that captures, in a way, um, the, the fact that the international order we take so much for granted about, and we only really notice when sand gets in the gears. If you had to choose which area, political, economic, um, or security elements of the order you worry most about now, which would it be? It's almost impossible to, to disentangle the three tidily. Um, because of my background, I was initially, when I started looking at this as a commentator, that line of less, I was focused on the security agenda because that, that after all, is it's where the bad stuff happens. So that's right. where countries do one another intentional and manifest harm or defend themselves against harm. And the political side of it, I was, of course, interested in that because that's where, as a former diplomat, that's the arena in which we operate in order to stop conflict and military hostilities towards uh, between countries. But you know, latterly, I've come to think that the economic order is much more important and the consequences of sacrificing the global economy could be far greater than a miscalculation on the straightforward conventional security agenda or indeed a, a miscalculation in political relations between countries. And I was struck by a comment that Governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, made a couple of days ago on, on the, the global economy and the importance of preserving it. And he, he had there an interesting little statistic, which was just, just comparing the amount of trade between, uh, I think it was the US and the former Soviet Union and, and the trade now between, say, US and China. And, and looking at those figures, you know, US and, and China trade was worth something like $4 billion a year at its maximum in the 1980s. It's $540 billion now. Yeah. And one of the great facts, a fact with which we're generally comfortable at the moment, is that there is a thing called the global economy. And we've always had global trade, and the UK has always been in, in the forefront, historically, driving forward global trade, and we did very well out of it, thank you. But the global economy is a different thing. It has this dense network of interdependencies, as well as uh, an almost now impossible to disentangle network of interlocking considerations around security, policy, thresholds for good behavior, bad behavior, all the sorts of things that used to be pretty much what you could decide in the political arena now right inside the economic agenda. And it's also striking that we've got two major economic wars going on at the moment. I think they are really wars, despite what people say. One is a trade war between the US and China. And the other, if I may, if I may throw it in there, is, is the policy of maximum pressure on the Iranian government, which is essentially being delivered through financial instruments. 
So you, as usual, raise 400 interesting things in the space of five sentences, and I want to take them um, piecemeal. And the first is your point about the magnitude of economic interdependence uh, is one that we political scientists spend a lot of time wringing our hands about, trying to figure out whether economic interdependence in any way restrains security choices by, uh, by great powers. And there is a temptation amongst those of us in the West to believe that good things naturally go together, that economic interdependence does in fact restrain the recourse to violence by parties because uh, it operates as sort of an economic mutually assured destruction um, paralleling nuclear strategy. But there is the nagging suspicion that comes from the fact that the last time global trade was this interdependent was in the decade before the First World War. Where, how do you think your way through what effect economic interdependence may have on security choices? Well, that's a great reference, Jonathan. Um, historically, there are indeed precedents for this degree of interdependence and connectivity. But I do, do think there's a little bit of a difference between levels of global trade and the deeper connectivity I'm talking about in the global economy. And if you were to look, for example, at the, the vital trade that goes on to maintain countries' infrastructures, I mean, that's very much higher than it was. So it's not just the provision of hydrocarbons. It's also raw materials, some of which are crucial for telecoms, other aspects of national infrastructure and defense, and exchanges of expertise. So there's the, the kind of the concrete stuff that moves in ships and trains and planes, and there's the abstract stuff, the intellectual capital, the free movement of which is really important. There's possibly a third, third, third um, category here, which is movement of Currency and credit lines are absolutely vital. So now you know, you're looking, I think, very much more at one organism, economically and financially, rather than a number of entities which choose to trade with one another for certain mm -hmm. things. And the degree of dependency is so high in some cases that, that to decide not to trade, to decide to take a version of the extreme Albanian route is just, just not possible. Mm -hmm. So we're all obligated towards this system. I think that's what makes it, um, it, 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 it makes states think very carefully about entering into hostilities which could cost you access to that kind of system. But at the same time, it also makes being in that system a hell of a lot more competitive than it was. And mm -hmm. one of the problems that spins out of this is working out, when all states have to do this, what is a competition that we're going to enter into and when, and what is a conflict? Yeah, so in Silicon Valley, they have an ungainly phrase of co-opetition, yeah. which is the way that big tech firms in Silicon Valley are sometimes partners and sometimes direct competitors on things um, that, that may have application here. But 
it sounds like what you are saying is that the nuclear parallel that I flippantly used about mutually assured destruction may actually have some resonance because the you are suggesting you are asserting that the depth of global economic interaction is so much more pervasive now that um, that states pay a different kind and broader penalty uh, for segregating supply chains, for trying to renationalize activity, for trying to prevent uh, capital flows and immigration flows, so that we may actually, the difference between <laughs> 1914 and 2019 may in fact be the difference between conventional forces in capability to create deterrence and the way nuclear weapons have actually made uh, conflict between the strongest powers in the international order less likely. I w Go ahead. We're seeing a testing of just that parallel. So how far are countries prepared to, to, to hazard membership, active membership of the global economy with the access to markets capital, intellectual, financial, that, that all that entails. How far will they go? And not just governments. I noticed that uh, sanctimonious Tim Cook, uh, the, the chairman, the CEO of Apple, uh, announced two things in the last month. The first was that iPhones can now be made exclusively without Chinese components. And second, that iPads or the MacBook Air will from now on be made solely in China. And so, right, like the American government may be able to compel him to renationalization of production, but it cannot compel him only to American production. And, and global companies with as broader shoulders as Apple may make choices that governments can't anticipate. That, that or gives don't that, anticipate. That's right. That, that example gives out onto the, the challenge that both companies and countries have got here, which is how, how you maintain a spread of relationships, dependencies, and coalitions, which are vital to your survival. How do you do that at a time when you may be invited to take, take a side, to choose? Whereas John Chipman, the director general of the IISS, put it in a Harvard Business Review article a couple of years ago, um, the way geopolitics are progressing, companies may be required to have foreign policies because the geopolitical risk that choices of nations create for them require a level of due diligence that they haven't had previously to undertake. Well, that was the origins, I think, of my job title. And when people ask me, what, you know, what in practice <laughs> does it mean <laughs> to advise on geopolitical due diligence? It's, it's just that. It's to encourage um, our partners, the IISS, um, to think about whether or not they need a foreign policy. And if they've got one, are they, are they taking care of it? It's not enough just to have one. It's the kind of thing you need to be daily conscious of. What I notice at least about Silicon Valley firms is that they have a tendency to conflate policy planning of this kind with lobbying. That is, in their minds, they still think narrowly 
about influencing government choices rather than having as a component of their product development, what are the risks that undertaking this line of activity, which is a core of our business, what kind of exposure is it gonna open us to? How do you, how do you think and advise on those issues? Well, risk is, it, it's a complicated issue. Even when you can put numbers on risk, it's, it's, it's never straightforward to both understand, socialize the understanding, act on the understanding of what your risk is. And partly that's because individuals tend to bring their own attitudes towards risk to the table. But nonetheless, I think there's something that you can do systematically on, if you like, the non-numerical risk. Like any risk, foreign policy risk has got two bits to it. There's the, 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 the thematic continuities you need to be aware of. So what's going on in the big picture in the environment that you're operating on? And then secondly, the, the kind of particularities of this. So how does that play out in that particular country, company, that organization that, that you're working with? Now, now, the second bit of that, um, often organizations are well tooled up to do that. There's a straightforward due diligence bit, how much you know about this client, this country, do you know the power brokers are, there's all that kind of stuff that you need in order to be successful. So that, that tends, that bit of it is okay. Then there's, so what is that, that government's foreign policy? Do you understand that and what the implications might be for you? Because you also have branches or you have ambitions in another country and relationships you're not so good. So that all that's relevant to the locale. Now the bit I think where companies need to be much more aware and to have their, their sensors a little bit more finely tuned is these shifts in the environment, the geopolitical environment that they're operating in. And every now and then we see instances where um, a company kind of gets caught out by this. And, and the example that I, I always use is, the, is, is this rising tide of shareholder activism over the big themes. I mean, the big themes used to be of concern, but not really if your profit lines were good. Uh -huh. you know, profitability of the company is okay, tolerances of shareholders are good. But suddenly, if you're not green enough, or if you are dealing with a country which is very controversial, or there's something about it which doesn't fit with the zeitgeist, then the reaction of, of shareholders and customers can be instantaneous. So you've got to be fleet of foot in your response to that and understanding of it. And oh, you I also think we saw it with Boeing, right? Great example. Defense industry has always been tough with defense industry, but they're in a different era now where, if you like, international tolerances for the activities of the, def of the defense industry are, are, are not what they were. So I was thinking less of Boeing's defense industry work than the, was it, uh, the airplane crash that occurred where its subsequent reporting uh, made clear that Boeing's uh, business model of requiring the purchase of upgrades to the software actually had security component, essential security components yeah. in the uh, upgrades that had to be paid for. Now, that would have been a perfectly sensible business decision, 
for somebody who knew nothing about geopolitical due diligence. Yeah. And the person who made that decision at Boeing probably actually didn't think as carefully as they ought to have for preservation of the company's brand and profits, right. probably did not think as carefully as they ought to about the geopolitical due diligence yeah. issues. Yeah, and there are, there are several areas of the world where companies may have been long established, I'm thinking of the Middle East, Far East, other parts of Asia, where um, th the risk that you're on is that whilst you're, you're, you're comfortable in the country and you're comfortable with the way that business is done in the country, you might not have fully taken on board changes in the global climate, metaphorically, on a big issue that you're involved in. And the reason that matters is that, is that no company operates in just one country. If you're listed, your shareholders are not going to be just from one country. So in a way, so everyone's global. Given that you spent a lot of your career in the Middle East, would I be accurate in guessing that companies that have distributed business across Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Qatar would be especially exposed to that risk, given the frictions politically amongst those countries? Challenging times if you if you have a portfolio spread across those countries. It's you could you could include a number of Middle Eastern countries there. You could put Turkey in there as well. Mm -hmm. And the risk is is less that you are suddenly not compliant with the local jurisdiction. Companies are tooled up to do that. It's that something happens, something is occasioned by the host government. They do something which precipitates a reaction you, you can't dissociate yourself from. So you become associated with a country, even though you may not be based there. That may just be one of a number of countries you're based in. To pick another example, uh, the decision that participants in Saudi Arabia's investment conference had to make uh, when the revelation of uh, the Khashoggi murder was fresh and the investment conference was several days later, right? That's, that's a question about ongoing relationships with Saudi Arabia, about uh, potential damage to your brand by association, but potential exclusion from profitable. That's a hard decision to make in real time. Um, and uh, what I notice about military strategy is that uh, m governments that are best at it are ones who think about these kinds of problems well ahead of time because the answer that you give in the moment may not be as fulsomely, you might not think about all the turns of the kaleidoscope when you have 20 minutes to make a decision as if you actually have a robust red teaming or yeah. due diligence process in place. Yeah, and contingency planning is a, is a big part of having a successful foreign policy. The, the greater part, I think, is understanding that you, you really do have to have a foreign policy because you are a major foreign player. So I think for, for bigger companies, the uh, ability to, to step back and say, this is a matter for governments, not for us. I think that has been taken away, and the expectation is that they they will, in that example that you gave, they'll take a lead. And it may be, as I think was the case, some companies um, were out there with a response before governments were. 
And That's a really nice example. And you don't you don't have long to decide. Look, to put it bluntly, if you're a household name and your logo is known all over the world, you're an influencer. You're a bigger influencer than most governments, many of whom are ignored by their own populace. But you might not be. So you ha there is that additional responsibility to take a position. So in my provincial American nationalism, by which I mean patriotism, let me offer two examples that reinforce your point. Uh, the first is uh, the biggest opportunity my government missed after September 11th was Disney offered to help us arrange immigration um, in, uh, border entry points, right? Because they deal with huge long lines with people that <laughs> want to keep happy. Yeah. And, and the American government couldn't figure out how to do that. It was such a missed opportunity because we had somebody good at doing this when we were bad at this and we missed it. A second is, um, which is a happier example, is McDonald's in Austria, I think, uh, has started allowing people who need consular assistance from the United States government to show up at a McDonald's restaurant and the embassy official will come to you, um, right? Because people, uh, can find a McDonald's easily, they do it all the time. And so thinking about ways, in both those cases, the American government benefited enormously by association. But those were voluntary choices by both of those companies. And in both instances, they believed their brand would be inseparable from the choices the government was going to make. And so they wanted the government to make choices that were going to make people feel have positive experiences with the United States. Yeah. That's a very interesting example because the, the nature of the relationship between governments and immensely powerful corporations is, is shifting and it's not clear where it's going to come to rest. Both have a different kind of power. Sometimes they have different interests, often they have the same. But how you knit those together in a world where for many people the corporation and the brand may be more important than the government. I think that's a very interesting area. There are, there are a couple of things which make corporations suddenly, unexpectedly, and perhaps disproportionately empowered. One is the amount of data that they hold. Mm -hmm. And data holding is not necessarily McDonald's, but, but it is applicable to the retail sector as it is the, to, to finance, industry, insurance. And so huge amounts of data which have a value to the government, they have a value in the market as well. So there's that, the whole, the sudden empowerment they have through their data. And the second is that they are the principal beneficiaries of globalization. Right. So they, they cross borders with the speed in a way that governments would long to do. <laughs> so a thing to be worked out, one of the kind of themes in, in the order is where does that relationship settle? It's, it contains within it all the really tricky stuff like privacy, customer and human rights. It also circles us back to where we started this conversation, which is about the international order. 
because what we are seeing, what we are arguing about across the Atlantic, what we are fearful about as we look at the rise of the repressive surveillance state in China and it marketing that option to other authoritarian governments, we are contesting the rules of the international order where data and personal privacy are concerned. Um, and uh, the phrase I first heard used by you, and I am now seeing all over the place, which is data is the new oil. Um, that, that we are actually in the midst of the emergence of the rules of international order as, as data and privacy are concerned. To close this out, any last thoughts on that subject, my friend? If, if data is the new oil, we need to focus quickly on the new gulf. <laughs> so it's the, it's the people who have it and how they commoditize it and sell it. Uh, that could be definition of the economy, which, as I said right at the beginning, maybe is the thing to watch. And my associated final thought is it is astonishing in this age what the possession of data, the ability to control data has done to governments and states. It has been universally enabling and the responsible exercise of that power is, is an abiding challenge for governments. But it has left us with what I call the, the able state, is that states are able, whatever their size, to do very much more than, than they could. It's a real challenge for policymakers. Yeah. And it's, it's a theme I know that we, we look at at S, and it's likely to, to, to drain through everything that, that we do, certainly when we're looking at conflict and conflict resolution. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, if data is the new oil, we had anticipated, or I had anticipated, and, and others as well, that the technologies driving the, the globalization of information and the speed at which it's being transmitted, that those would be fundamentally democratizing yeah. because they give individuals the ability to bear witness um, and yet the early beneficiaries are very clearly governments. Um, and John Rain, we didn't get to any of the typical questions that we ask on this podcast, but many of them aren't all that well suited to your extensive uh, experience as a diplomat. I love it that you uh, that you let us sink our teeth together into these questions about what constitutes geopolitical due diligence. What what kind of systematic approaches can we take to think about these problems? Um, and the to explore whether globalization is actually deeper. It, than it has been in previous rounds when, for example, Portuguese navigators opened up the new world for us all, um, or whether there are elements that are fundamentally different about this round of globalization and the challenges that will go with maintaining a different kind of spread of relationships by governments, by businesses, and even by individuals who are empowered by these new technologies as well. 
John Rain, thank you so much for this conversation and for the excellent work you do for the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Thank you, Corey. My pleasure.